nice to see people here. You never know on that Sunday mid-spring break what you're going to end up with. So welcome. So I want to set the stage for today's gospel. Jesus is continuing on his travels to Jerusalem. He's been walking, teaching, and healing for days and days and days. He gets word that his friend, Lazarus, had become sick and died. Lazarus's body lay in the tomb in Bethany for four days, and many people came to comfort his sisters, Martha and Mary, at their loss. Martha and Mary hear that Jesus is coming, and Mary leaves the tomb, goes home, not wanting to see Jesus because she's angry that he didn't come in time to save Lazarus. But Martha goes out to meet Jesus on the road, and when he arrives, Martha confronts him. She's also angry because she believes that if Jesus had been there, he could have saved Lazarus from death. And then she says, I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. She believes that Jesus has the power to bring Lazarus back from the dead. And Jesus responds, your brother will rise again. Martha, sure, I know. He'll rise in the resurrection on the last day, but that's not what I want. I want him here with me now. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she says, yes, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. Martha runs home to get Mary and tells her that Jesus has arrived and is asking for her. So Mary jumps up and runs to Jesus, and the people who've been at the house with her follow her. When she meets Jesus on the road, she says, as Martha did, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha is weeping, and Jesus begins to weep, too. And the people are moved, seeing how much Jesus loved his friend. And then they go to the tomb, and Jesus asks the people to move the stone from the cave. Martha warns him that the smell will be awful. After all, Lazarus has been dead for four days. But they move the rock anyway, and Jesus thanks God for hearing his prayers, and he says in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus says to the people, take off the grave clothes and let him go. It is such a poignant and dramatic scene, perhaps the single event that best combines Jesus' humanity with his divinity. Jesus weeps at the tomb of his beloved friend, so human and vulnerable. And then he brings him back to life. It's amazing. And the many Jews who were there who witnessed this miracle, many of them believed and committed themselves to him while others went and told the Pharisees what they'd seen. They were probably a little bit freaked out by the whole thing. And the chief priests and Pharisees begin plotting to kill Jesus, setting the next phase of this story into motion. And Jesus goes into hiding with his disciples. Shortly after this, six days before Passover, Jesus, I think of him as sort of sneaking into Bethany to share a meal with his friends, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha among them. The dinner in his honor 
After all, he did just bring Lazarus back to life. It seems the least they could do. And Lazarus sits at the table with Jesus, being the gracious host, while Martha begins to serve them dinner. And then we witness this beautiful scene. This is one of the most sensual scenes in the New Testament. Mary falls to her knees. She is holding a jar of pure nard. Mark describes it as an alabaster jar, so I always picture this pure white gleaming jar in her hands. She breaks it open, and this oily, unctuous ointment drips into her hands, and she pours it onto Jesus' feet. I imagine Jesus sitting there, having walked days and days and days across hot, dusty land with nothing but a pair of sandals to protect his feet, which are tired and aching. And Mary begins to rub this unctuous oil into his feet, her hands warm as she rubs his aching feet. And I imagine his body begins to relax a little. How can it not? You ever had your feet rubbed? Heaven. And then the room is filled with this earthy, sort of herbaceous, a little bit spicy smell of the nard. It's not an entirely pleasant smell, a little bit of a patchouli-like note to it. It's distinctive, not a bad smell, but not entirely pleasing. Pure nard. The cost of a pint of nard would be equivalent to a year's wages for a laborer in biblical times. Mary's gift to Jesus is extravagant, luscious, and deeply intimate as she then takes her long hair and wipes the ointment from his feet. Mary's hair, which again in biblical times would always be worn up, usually covered, imbues this act with profound sensuality and intimacy. And when I say it is sensual and intimate, I don't mean sexual, I don't mean erotic, but deeply sensual, embodied hand to foot, skin to skin, hair to skin, heart to heart. And it's a beautiful moment, and as I read this, I feel a little like an interloper in this very private moment, as I believe Judas did. Yeah, he gives, there are many reasons why he objects to this act, but I think most of all, He's uncomfortable bearing witness to Mary's wild and unrestrained love for Jesus. It feels exorbitant and excessive to him, her anointing of Jesus with her whole heart, body, and soul. And it is an anointing, which is generally done for three reasons, a means of health and comfort, a token of honor, as a symbol of consecration, a time when God comes upon a person and enables them to do things that they're not capable of doing with their own strength alone. In this beautiful, intimate scene between Mary and Jesus, all three are happening. Mary offers him that bodily comfort. She honors him with the gift, and to, she honors him because of his gift of Lazarus's life. And she prepares him to go forward into the next phase of his ministry, giving him strength in the knowledge that he is loved. And Jesus embraces the rich lavishness of the gift 
for what it is, an act of humble grace and love. A colleague wrote, so Mary might have given Jesus the stunning gift of extravagance as a thank you or as a prophetic witness as to what would soon be, meaning preparation for his burial, right? Perhaps her motivation was a mixture of both. But what if? What if another reason Mary poured it all out that day was simply because she knew deep down that her gift would make a holy difference to Jesus? Her gift, her generous offering, could remind him who he was and how much he was loved. Remember, Jesus is at a turning point in his ministry. Plots to kill him have begun, and he knows what awaits him as he makes his way to Jerusalem. And like other turning points in his life, he is sent forward confident in who he is and shrouded in love. I'm reminded of other times in his life when he's about to step into a new phase of his ministry, and he is sent in with love to protect and strengthen him. The blessing he receives from God before he goes into the wilderness. I preached on this a few weeks ago. When Jesus hears that voice, you are my beloved. With you I am well pleased. So he goes into the wilderness secure in himself and in his belovedness. And then I'm reminded of his interaction with his mother at the wedding in Cana. Jesus insists it's not his time yet. He's not ready but his mother knows better, as mothers often do. Because of her insistence, Jesus starts doing what he came to do. Because of her encouragement, he realizes the time really has come. Because of her love, Jesus can do what he was sent to do. Jesus' mother sends him into his future shrouded in her love. I wonder sometimes if it weren't for his mother when Jesus' ministry would have actually gotten started. And now in Bethany, Jesus finds himself in the same kind of position, the same kind of transition. After Mary anoints Jesus, he will enter the city of Jerusalem, making his way towards his death. And he needs that same encouragement, that same love to do what he must do. Mary's extravagant love for Jesus makes it possible for him to show extravagant love in what follows, washing the disciples' feet, handing himself over to be arrested in the garden, carrying his own cross, dying, rising, and ascending. Mary sends Jesus into his future shrouded in love so that he can be the fulfillment of a God who loves the world. He is loved by God, by his mother, by his friends, so he is able to love. We all need to know we're loved and that people who love us believe in us if we're going to achieve all that we're meant to achieve in this life. We all need those beings in our life who say, yes, you can do it, and send us into our future shrouded in love. We all need to be nurtured and held sometimes extravagantly. I wonder if in this moment when Jesus is being loved with a grace upon grace, kind of love, an abundance of love, a love that you could even smell with a fragrance that would probably linger in the air for days. 
If in this moment Jesus thought of the time he spent in the wilderness, shrouded by God's love, I wonder if he thought of his mother who loved him with that special maternal love that gave him courage to step into his ministry. I've been thinking about this a lot recently as I prepare to send my youngest child, my son, off into the world. This week we'll spend a few days in Phoenix so he can decide if that is where he wants to begin his college career, his first foray into independence. It's bittersweet, isn't it? I am so proud of the young man who has become confident, kind, funny, bigger than life. Any of you who know Oscar know that. He's bigger than life. And yet there's still so much that he has to learn, a little bit of humility, to get to work or class on time, laundry, you know, growing up kinds of things. But my job is to let him know what he's capable of, that he's ready and to love him as he steps into his future. I was given a gift a few months ago. I had hoped Annie Sampson would be here this morning because she gave me this gift and I never even thanked her for it. Annie was telling me that her daughter Sarah had moved home after graduating from college in I think three years, which is pretty impressive. She was commenting on, on how great it was to have Sarah home, that she used to get really annoyed when Sarah left dishes in the sink and how now she loved seeing those dishes because it meant Sarah was with her again. She was home. It's been a few months. I'm not sure how Annie is feeling about it now. But it was an important message for me to hear as I'm preparing to send my youngest child out into the world, and it would be easy to let this time slip by unnoticed. But because of Annie's words, her gift, I decided not to. I decided to pay really close attention, to celebrate this time. I lovingly wash the dishes that he leaves in the sink at all hours. Honestly, I don't mind it at all. Also, we tend to all go our own ways in the evening. My husband, Bruce, sequestered in our bedroom watching news or some car racing show or a sporting event. Me, usually reading next to him. And Oscar in the living room alone, doing whatever it is that Oscar does. I started reading instead in the evening in the living room, and Oscar still does his own thing, but in a chair near mine, or sometimes even curled up on the couch by my side, which is kind of funny because my son, if you know him, is 6'6", six, six, he takes up most of the couch. And I was thinking about it this morning, usually his feet are in my lap. He's a little nard. But he sits there with me, and sometimes we talk. Sometimes I help him run lines for whatever show he's in. But I never said a word about why I decided to spend time in the living room in the evenings. I just did it. But the other day, Oscar said, I really like having you in the room with me, Mom. Extra extravagant love doesn't always require expensive nard. Sometimes it just means showing up being present. I feel certain, I don't feel certain about a lot, but I feel certain that Oscar knows what it feels like to be loved into his future. And I know what it feels like to love someone into their future, even a future that is uncertain, even a future that will mean suffering and hardship. 
and he knows and I know that when that suffering and hardship come, I am here loving him. Just as the Marys loved Jesus at the foot of the cross and at the tomb. I think Jesus took Mary's love with him into Jerusalem. I think he acted out her love when he washed the feet of the disciples, especially when he washed the feet of Judas, who would betray him, and Peter, who would deny him. I think he felt Mary's love and her gentle touch when he was beaten. I think he held on to Mary's love when he hung on that cross. I think he thought of Mary's love when he uttered his final words on the cross, it is finished. And then I think Jesus took all of that love into the tomb. He took all of that love into his future as the embodied resurrection and the life. And that makes the story of, what makes the story of Jesus so deeply powerful, so intimate, is not what he tells us, but how he embodies the message. He is a physical, sensual, spiritual being. There's no shame. There's no holding back. There's no fear. He embodies loving and being loved. And he teaches us how to love and be loved. You might ask yourself how you are being called on to love. And what surprising, extravagant, perhaps wild or shocking ways might you be called on to care for your neighbor to offer an ear to listen, to do your own work of faithfulness, of courage, to make an offering of humble grace and love, to fall down on your knees and anoint someone because it would make a holy difference in their life, a gift, a generous offering that could remind someone who they are, what they are capable of, and how much they are loved, or maybe you are asked to accept that kind of gift when it is offered to you.